Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com. I will welcome you guys. If you have a Bible, you can take that out. We're going to spend the next few minutes just diving into the scriptures. And uh, we're in our second week of Advent. And again, if you're new to uh, the church or light church and the word Advent is a new kind of um, word or phrase for you, again, it's, it's around this idea, like Benny said, of arrival. And like any arrival, if you remember being a kid and a friend was coming over, family was coming in from out of town, there's this expectation that begins to increase. And that sort of expectation should be reflective of this season in our hearts. As we look backwards at what Jesus has done, and also as we long for his uh, second coming and for his return, there's something about this season that is incredibly powerful in our hearts. And whether it's a positive or negative way, our hearts will be shaped in this season, whether by the busyness um, or the kind of the hectic nature of the season, or we can ask the Holy Spirit to come and do the opposite, slow our hearts down, to come and to rest in his presence and what he's done. And so let's do that before we uh, begin. Let's just pray and let's just ask uh, the Lord just to quiet our hearts. And uh, maybe this is the first time for you this week. Just have a moment just to stop and be still. And uh, let's just listen to what the Holy Spirit would have to, to say to us this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we're listening, we're ready, we're attentive to what you want to speak to us through your word. We come and we recognize all of the static and the noise that exists in our, in our hearts and minds. And Lord, I ask that you would just allow that just to be stilled. And Lord, I pray that as we reflect on you, God, your goodness and your light, Lord, I pray that that would change and shape us. Lord, I pray as we come once again to the incarnation, Lord Jesus, to your coming to Emmanuel, Lord, just that that promise and that reality would never lose its wonder, would never lose its effect on us. Oh, we love you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, let, let me catch you up if you missed last week. Uh, we are looking at the Gospel of John for our Advent text this year, which is an interesting thing to do uh, because in John's Gospel or biography of Jesus' life, he doesn't record the Christmas story as we might think of the Christmas story. And for those of you who are just like, well, I just want to hear the Christmas story, um, we'll tie that in today and we'll definitely be talking about that on Christmas Eve. But there's something about John's gospel that although it might not mention some of the things that sound familiar to us, it is very much the Christmas story. It is a story of Advent and arrival, but it's told rather than a close eyewitness account, it's told from a 30,000 foot view of what's, has, what's happening cosmologically as Jesus is coming into the world. And so last week we talked about three significant words that John wants us to focus on, not just in the first chapter of his book, but he's really giving us a prologue for his entire book. If you read the entire gospel of John, which we'll be doing, we'll be walking through this book together, you'll see these themes come up again and again and again. So John is not just only introducing us to Jesus, he's introducing us to the entirety of his book. And so the three words he chooses to, chooses to introduce Jesus as are these three understandings. The first is logos, which we talked about is, is, is translated as the word, but don't think of it as a word as something that you would say. 
But the, the Greek philosophers identified this as the powerful animating force that controls and orders the universe. This is the word that is given to Yahweh in the Old Testament according to the Septuagint. So this is an incredibly rich, meaningful word. And, and he says that this word gives life. This is our second word. And this idea of life is zoe life, abundant life, not just bios or suke or kind of existing or psychology. No, no, it's talking about this rich, eternal quality of life that Jesus came to bring. And this life brought light. And so we talked about, or started to talk about this idea of light. And we're going to continue this concept of what does it mean that Jesus brought light into the world? And specifically, we're going to be looking at this morning, how does that light affect us? So that's really kind of the theme of this morning is it's the light in us. And now it's not just something that we get to observe and see from a distance, but this light, like all light that we interact with, changes the atmosphere, it changes us. And so we need to ask ourselves the question through the text, who is, who is this light changing? And so, uh, and in order to do that, we're going to be continuing through, we're going to actually read quite a bit of John chapter one today. And the reason for that is because John jumps around a little bit, but he does it on purpose. But before we dive into the actual text, we want to just remember what we talked about last week. It's the magnitude of the incarnation, what Jesus came to bring as the logos, the word of God, who was with God in the beginning, who was God, and nothing that we see is in existence without him, that he's the life, the abundant life we all crave, and that he is the light of all mankind. St. Augustine says, man's maker was made man that he... Sorry, man's maker was made man. That he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. That bread might hunger. The fountain thirst. The light sleep. The way be tired on its journey. That truth might be accused of false witness. The teacher be beaten with whips. The foundation be suspended on wood. That strength might grow weak that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. This is the wonder of the incarnation. And it's within that concept, I want to draw our attention again to the opening lines of John chapter one, when it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was, and here's our focus this morning, the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Uh, light's an, a fascinating thing to study. Uh, like the brain, it's one of those things that scientists just never quite seem to get to the bottom of. The more they study it, the more it, it kind of leads them to a space of wonder and ambiguity of what is this thing and how does it work. And recently, NASA was studying their astronauts as they were in space, and they were studying how their absence from Earth's light, natural light cycle, started affecting them cognitively and biologically. And they, they found that the astronauts were sleeping less and because they were sleeping less because of their absence of earth light cycle, they were testing lower on their IQ scores and that their, their relationship with light was affecting them uh, both in their mind and in their body. And through their research, 
they came across some really interesting findings. I want to read you just some of the things that NASA came across. It says this, earthly light dynamically changes in intensity and wavelength during the day. This is reflective in the change of color of the light. Whereas morning light has a bluish tone, short wavelength, high intensity, this turns red as evening approaches, longer wavelengths, moderate intensity. This dynamic light enters through our eyes and is sent via the optic nerve to the regions of the brain responsible for hormone production. So think about this. So light, the light that we interact with produces the hormones in our brain. The presence of blue light from sunlight in the morning or artificial light like televisions and iPhones and monitors stimulate the production of cortisol and inhibits the production of melatonin, the sleeping hormone. Conversely, if exposure to blue light decreases it, stimulates the natural production of melatonin, this is the signal for the body to gradually relax. So let me, let me explain kind of how this works. So in the morning when we wake up, we're exposed to blue light, right? It's higher intensity, shorter wavelength. And this sends cortisol, the hormone, into our brain, which actually creates a healthy level of stress. It wakes you up. It's time to go. And as the day progresses, what happens is the blue light turns into red light. It's where we get the color of our sunset and why it looks different than the color of our sunrise. And as we are leaving blue light and entering into red light, cortisol stops being produced and melatonin starts being produced. And that starts telling the body it's time to sleep. There's been all sorts of different uh, studies now that are going on at the effects of, and they're actually saying it's best for you to turn off the TV and your phone an hour and a half before you go to sleep. Because if you don't, the amount of blue light coming from your screen is telling your body to continue to produce cortisol rather than melatonin. And, and so as I'm studying this, I mean, it's, it's just fascinating me. And I'm looking at the relationship of our bodies and our minds and our souls when it comes to light. I, I can't help but think that this is actually very similar to how the light of the world interacts with each one of us. Now, are there universal principles that Jesus comes as the light? Absolutely. But what we find through the scriptures is that this light for all mankind interacts with people differently. Sometimes this light comes and it brings a certain substance in one person, while in another person, in the, in the, in the Christmas story, it brings out something else. And similarly, how the same source of light, the sun that we have, can either make us ramped up or go to sleep. It's really similar to what Jesus does. That people in this room right now, and one of the hard jobs about pastoring and teaching is every single one of you guys are different. Every single one of you guys have different stories. But part of the wonder and the majesty of the word of God and the Holy Spirit is that somehow it transcends all of that. That the Holy Spirit can speak to every single heart, every single soul, and every single story that is represented in this room and in the next couple of services. That only the light of the world, the way that Jesus is, can do that. It's magnificent and miraculous. And so we're going to be looking at how the light of the world interacts with three different characters this morning. First, we're going to be looking at John the Baptist. Um, who in John's gospel is more referred to as John the witness. He's actually never, we never really see John baptizing in John's gospel. Um, and by the way, before I confuse you, the author of this book is named John. We'll call him John the beloved, which is the title he gave himself. Um, and he's talking about another John, uh, often known as John the Baptist. Uh, but again, in John the beloved's account of him, he's not really known as a baptizer, but as a witness. 
So we have John the witness. We're going to look at John the, Bab- or John the beloved. We're also going to be looking at Mary, the mother of Jesus. And lastly, we're going to be looking at us. And so we're going to be looking how this light interacts with these different characters in the scripture and in the text. And the goal is this. Here's our main theme. The gospel, which is what we're talking about. It is the good news that Jesus came as the light into the world to dispel darkness for all of eternity. It's called often by scholars the great equalizer. And we'll get into what that means here in a second. But essentially what happens is it draws us to this place that no matter where you are, the gospel draws us into this commonality and union of what exactly our soul is in need of, even if what we need is different. Let me explain that to you over the next few minutes here as we look at these different characters. So number one, let's look at John the witness. Um, We're going to read... Almost all of John chapter one. So if you have a Bible, you can stick out with me. But I want you to pay attention to John's writing style here. John writes in a really kind of erratic kind of way where he bounces around. And if you are, if you love literature, if you're an English major, this is going to drive you nuts. Because it's like, what are you doing here, John? Okay, so let's, let's read. We're going to kind of read this. And when it's talking about Jesus, I'll kind of hold up my left hand. And when it's talking about John the Baptist, I'll hold up my right. And you'll see kind of how John moves back and forth in between these texts. But as we're doing that, listen to how John the witness is being portrayed. So again, we began with the text of in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I mean, this crescendo, beautiful out of the gate. And all of a sudden, there was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone has come into the world. He was in the world and through the world was made through him. The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. By the way, this is all next week's text. It's so beautiful and rich. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him, crying out, saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Leaves that. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and You guys get the idea. Like, you're like, if, if you literally took out the texts about John the witness, it would read as one congruent thought. And if you just added up all the texts that just talk about John the Baptist, they are one congruent thought. And yet somehow they are spliced together in a certain way that for a while, scholars were just saying, man, he just really messed this up. I would have written it like this. (laughs) But more recently, scholars have actually started to just realize that what he's doing here is brilliant. 
That, and, and it's not just honoring him as an author, it's, it's honoring this as the word of God, that rather than presenting these two parallel ideas, it's disrupting us as we're reading. It's contrasting these two characters, the light and John who was not the light. And he's doing this to show this stark contrast. When the question is, why? Why would John the Beloved write this in such a way? Why would the Holy Spirit inspire him to write this in such a way that would draw us our attention from this to that, to this to that? And at the end of it, it leaves us a little bit with a little bit of like kind of literary vertigo of like, okay, where are you having me look? And, the, and John's like, this is kind of the point. And the reason because of that has a lot to do with who John the Baptist and who John the Witness was in that day. Um, because as, at the time when this is being written, John the Baptist was maybe the most prolific and most celebrated person in the Jewish world, more than Jesus. Uh, he's the last Old Testament prophet. He had a massive following. If you look outside of the Bible for other historical texts, there's more written about John the Baptist than Jesus. John the Baptist was a huge, huge deal. He had gained the attention of both the Roman world and the Jewish world. And so one thing that John the Beloved is doing here as he writes this is he's wanting his audience to know very clearly someone that they're very familiar with him. He's, he's talking about someone at the level of a massive celebrity or politician. He's saying, you know that person who's revered and honored and praised by the world, he doesn't even compare to Jesus. And he wants to just get our attention off of John the Witness and he does this by using John the Baptist himself as, as telling him, hey, look, I'm not the light. I'm not the one you're looking for. A matter of fact, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And so what's interesting is in, in John the Beloved's gospel, we don't see John the Baptist baptizing people we see him because in his, in his ministry of baptizing people is where he grew really his, his success and his fame in that day, which by the way, John the Baptist never wanted. We see him cast that off. But what we see in this moment is we see John the Beloved paint him as a witness. He's just telling what he saw. And this is where I think for us, um, this is where our story begins of how does the light interact with John the Baptist? Well, I want to read you the end of John chapter three. We're going to fast forward um, into the later part of Jesus's life. And what's interesting about John's gospel is he does not record the death of John as the other synoptic gospels do. But many scholars believe that he the way he describes John's death is not talking about his execution, but is with these words. Listen, listen to the last time we hear from John the Baptist. John chapter three, verse 27 says, to this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. 
The friend who attends the bridegroom awaits and listens for him. And it is full and, and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. And we don't hear from John the Baptist again. It's this incredibly poetic, beautiful exit where John ends his space in this piece of literature just saying, listen, I'm not the Messiah. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. I'm just the friend. And the friend rejoices when he hears the bridegroom. That joy is mine and now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. It is this compelling introduction to what light does. This light that John is, is, is introduced to <clears throat> takes all of the spotlight, all of the fame, all of the, the thing. And, and here's what's amazing what we see about John. John doesn't play like fake humility, like, oh, no, 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 no. He uses his influence to point to the true light. He doesn't diminish his ministry. We don't ever see him run away from the crowds. He continues his ministry to the very end of his life. He doesn't, he doesn't stop his impact. He doesn't deny his success. But in the midst of his strength and influence, what he does is, let me make sure you know I'm not who you think I am. Let me introduce you to the true light. And I think that as, as followers of Jesus, this is an incredible example for us. It's an example for us that we're not supposed to live lives in fake humility and modesty. We should be people who through the create, creativity that God has given us and the influence God has given us to go and advance light into the world. But as we do so, here's what you need to be aware of. People love to praise people. There will be moments like John the Baptist where people come and say, you're my savior. By the way, this happens to pastors all the time. And then there are moments when people, there have been moments in my life where people come and be like, oh my gosh, you, you've changed my life. And, I, and then that moment, and not in a cliche kind of way. And depending on the situation, I'll respond differently. But ultimately the goal is this, it actually has very little to nothing to do with me. That thing that you're experiencing is a result of Jesus Christ in me. And again, whether you are, whether you have become successful in your own sphere of influence or in business or in art and family and writing and whatever that looks like for you, when we see the true light, it doesn't take away what God has done for us. It gives us an opportunity to tell a greater story. And this is what John, it's interesting, John in John chapter five, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. Says, John was a lamp that burned and gave light. Isn't that funny? John the Baptist says, I'm not the light. What does Jesus call him? John was the lamp that burned and gave light. And you chose for a time to enjoy his light. So notice that. Jesus is not, when John says, I'm not the light of the world, Jesus is like, you're darn right. <laughs> Jesus' response to John the Baptist is he was a lamp. He gave light. He raises him up. But John's response was humility. But what's interesting is there's two Greek words here. Luknos is the word for lamp. 
And this is the title given to John the Baptist. But that is not the word given to Jesus. The word given to Jesus is the Greek word phos or phos. This is where we get our word photography. Photography literally means to write with light. And it's this incredibly, these beautiful pictures where John was a lamp, right? But Jesus was the light. And I think for us to understand exactly who, who we are in light of Jesus, again, it doesn't make us shrink back and hide away. It gives us boldness to step into the lamp we've been called to be in the world and at the same time to remind people of who the light is. Uh, I had a funny moment this week. Uh, speaking of like not knowing or try, trying to figure out who you are, um, I took uh, Jubilee and a friend, a friend Riley, they're both up here um, uh, to uh, like a trampoline park this week and super fun. I'm still sore from Tuesday. I'm getting old. <laughs> and, and we're playing around and then and they come like bouncing up to me and they're like, and Julie's like, hey, dad, show, show Riley a picture when you and mom got married. And I'm like, okay. And like, you know, pulled up Instagram and like pulled up an old photo. And I'm like, hey, here's who we are. And I'm like, cool, thanks. And like went and bounced away. I'm like, oh, that's sweet. And then Jubilee comes and like bounces right up to me uh, a few minutes later by herself. And she's like, she's like, dad, I was trying to tell Riley that it doesn't matter what you look like. It matters about your personality. <laughs> and I'm like... I'm like, that's so sweet. And, and as she's bouncing away, I'm like, wait a minute. I'm the case study of looks don't matter? And, and she's like smiling as she's bouncing away, like, got him. I uh, know, she's grounded. Um, I was just thinking, it's just this funny moment where I was like, I didn't see myself like that. I thought I was like kind of cool, like in my puka shell necklace and like my white suit. I was like a vibe, you know, like 13 years ago. And Julie says, you are not the light. Let me just tell you, okay? Oh man, I think, I think there's something that happens when we, when we see the true light. There's something so powerful inside of us that lets us have this freedom to be, again, again, to be a creative, powerful force in the world, but to not receive the glory we were never meant to hold. That we have to have a place to put it. But let's, let's have that in contrast to Mary. So we have John the Baptist, again, the last Old Testament prophet. And by the way, in, as far as in the Jewish worldview, there was no one greater even, even a king, than a prophet sent by God. And this was John. And we see how the light interacts with John. But let's, t- let's turn over to Luke's gospel, one book back. And let's see how this light interacts with Mary. And it's very different. So if we have John, right, this incredibly well-known, praised, powerful, prophetic force in his community... Now we're going to be introduced to a young girl who's just hit puberty from a town called Nazareth, which is most likely a small migrant town of tents, no more than 500 people. And who's now just been found pregnant and not married. There could not be two more opposite characters. Uh, and I'm not just talking about in our understanding, in, in the Jewish understanding, 
there could not be two more polarizing introductions than John the Baptist and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so where you have John deflecting light, you have John using his influence to point to the one who truly is worthy of his glory. Now we're introduced to Mary, who's not only socially meek and humble, she's disgraced and shamed. And in the midst of her preparing to give birth to her son, she writes a song. And the Petersons read that. I want to read this again. I want you to listen to how the light interacts with someone like that. In Luke 146, it says, And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Is that not just a powerful line? From a disgraced, no name, poor woman who's yet to be married. From now on, because of this light, every generation will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to, to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he he promised our ancestors. I mean, what a beautiful, different kind of interaction. Again, he, here is the guy with everything. And Jesus speaks so highly of John the Baptist when he actually says, no one that has ever been born of a woman has been greater than John. The next line says, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater. And so you have John the Baptist who has everything, all the influence and all the authority and, and, and everything at his fingertips uses that to say, let me tell you about the true light. But then you have the no-named, shamed young girl and her song is, I have been seen. I have been lifted up. He remembered me. He's given strength to the humble. And this is what I mean when I say the gospel is the great equalizer. Because it can take all the power and influence in the world and draw it to humility. And it can take all of the humble and meek and even shamed people in the world and draw them to a place of worth and dignity. And this is where we exist within the gospel. We are all equal, right? Not because of some sort of cliche philosophy we're trying to put on each other, but because Jesus, the true light, has shined on us in such a way that we all come as equals at the foot of the cross. This is the power of the light. And so if you're here this morning and you feel like Mary, and you're like, I feel forgotten and disgraced and shamed, will you be lifted up this morning 
Would you sense the spirit of God raise you up and sing over you? I remember you, I see you, and I exalt you. And if you're here this morning and you have the world at your fingertips and have been blessed beyond imagination, would you be invited into the beauty of humility? Invited into a place where you can give that space in your life, the influence in your life as an opportunity to give glory back to Jesus. And it's the same light. It just says two very different things. Tim Keller says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's just thinking of myself less. One of my favorite definitions of humility is thinking about yourself accurately. In the light of the light, in the light of Christ, humility is thinking about yourself accurately. Let me give you one more example here. I want to talk about the author, John the Beloved. This is a quick example. In Mark's gospel, it, it tells us John the Beloved's first nickname, and it was not the one Jesus loved. In Mark chapter 3, it says, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the, the name um, Bornegas, which means sons of thunder. Did you know John's first name, nickname was Son of Thunder, right? Sounds like an 80s sitcom or something like that. Like his, uh, Sons of Thunder, like this, this is what he was known by. This isn't just, if you just think of like, oh, the beloved John guy, you know, he probably reads poetry and like sips like third wave coffee or whatever. Like I just, I don't get him. Sons of Thunder, I mean, this guy is like, it sounds like a kind of like a man's man, tons of just kind of this testosterone and power and force. And through the light, arrived at a place where he called himself, I'm the one Jesus loved. And by the way, these are just three case studies. John the Baptist, Mary the mother of Jesus, John the beloved. And when the light showed up, everything changed. This is what Advent does. Advent shines light on every single one of our souls. So the question is, what would light do resting upon your soul? And if you're like me, I was telling Jen, sometimes in the morning I feel like Mary and at night I feel like John the Baptist. Sometimes it's a matter of minutes. Sometimes it's not like a social status. Sometimes it's, an, it's a season. Sometimes it's literally a moment where you can hear the enemy whisper to your soul, you are nobody. And the light comes and says, let me tell you the truth. Let me raise you up. And then an hour later, you can start hearing the lie of the enemy saying, oh, you are the answer to the world's problems. <laughs> you are the Messiah. You are your own God. And you can hear the Holy Spirit shine the light and say, you don't have to wear that. Let me invite you into humility. Maybe you hear the enemy whisper over you the old names that you used to be known by. And you hear the light shine upon your soul and says, you are the beloved. So I, I don't know. I don't know where you are this morning. But what I do know is every single one of us is desperate for this light. 
and whatever you need, he has it. So two things as, as we prepare to leave. I don't know if Brandon's in the room. We could have the music. And if not, just pretend. Two things. We've, we've talked about their differences, but two things they all had similar. Number one, they knew who they were not. And number two, they knew who they were. First, they knew who they were not, which means every single one of these characters points to Christ. Did you notice in Mary's song, it uses the word me or my twice, and he uses the word he, him, or Lord over a dozen times? Her song about her exaltation is ultimately a song about Jesus. A.W. Tozer says, the victorious Christian neither exalts nor downgrades himself. His interests have shifted from self to Christ. And secondly, they knew who they were. They practiced humility. And that's an invitation to us. So if you're here tonight, like, or if you're here today, and you're just like, What's, what do I do practically? Two things. Point to Christ and practice humility. These are the natural responses to when light shines upon our souls. Tim Keller says, the Christian gospel is that I'm so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I'm so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself or less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. Will you bow your heads with me? Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsandiego.com.